All right, welcome to another edition here of Beyond Eight Figures. Steve Osher hanging out with Richie Ote. What's up, my brother? Going great, man. Going great, you? man. All right, y'all can't ask Always. for anything more than that. Wait, wait, holding it down in the studio. Mary Golay will be back next week. And here on Beyond Eight Figures, we do sit down with entrepreneurs who have either exited for more than $10 million uh, or currently run businesses that gross more than $10 million and get to the bottom of the tools and tactics, strategies and shortcuts and all the fun stuff that they're leveraging to get to where they are in their respective businesses and careers. Uh, and if you've missed any of the past episodes, go back and listen, because we've got some uh, some really amazing, uh, I mean, I just, I can't believe some of the guests that we've had on here. And some of the early episodes are absolutely worth going back and listening to, for sure. Brian Smith, the founder of Ugg Boots, you know, that billion-dollar company, Reed Tracy, CEO of uh, Hay House, I mean, Roland Frazier, it, it just on and on and on, just really great episodes. And uh, they keep coming. And they keep coming for sure, right? <laughs> and uh, and super excited to bring, uh, man, just, uh, Jeff, I can't, I can't believe all the fun stuff that, that you've done in your career. So just sailing's hanging out with us here today. Uh, Jeff, you're, uh, well, I would think with, uh, with a company like Startup Nevada, uh, you're probably joining us from Nevada. Would that be accurate? <laughs> that would be accurate. I'm coming to you from Las Vegas, Nevada. Today. Good old Las Vegas, Nevada. Yeah, man. So uh, let's just get it out of the way early here. How do you meet the criteria then for Beyond Eight Figures? Did you exit from a business for more than $10 million? Are you currently running businesses or a business that grosses more than $10 million annually? Just give, a, just give us a, a lay of the land of where you're at right now. Sure. Well, I'm hoping that our that our current one, Startup NV, um, which is a nonprofit business incubator, will get the 10 million. But we're yeah. not there yet. Yeah. The, uh, the the three things that I think qualify for the criteria are three uh, enterprise software companies that we started, uh, raised a boatload of money, grew them, and then all three of them went to IPO, and all three of them then were eventually acquired um, by other companies. Uh, the first one um, company. Was originally called Cordiant, was acquired by Pega for 162 million. Mm. Uh, the, the next one, Calidus, um, went went IPO'd uh, and then was just acquired by SAP about a year and a, maybe a couple of months ago for 2.8 billion. Mm. And then Appio um, went public two summers ago, um, and then they were just taken back private by Vista Equity Partners for 1.9. So I clearly yeah. I didn't own the whole company, but uh, I was part of the early crew, um, and you know the, my personal stake in those varied, uh, but but I think but I think I think certainly I meet the spirit of the agreement. Um, yeah, no, it's all good. It's all good, man. So so, um, so take us back, uh, and I just want to be clear on this. So were you the founder of any of those? No, I was the I was in the very early stages of of the being a one of the key executives. Mm-hmm. Two of the three, and a very early stage, sort of next level executive in the very first one. Yeah. So let, let's let's use one example. What was the name of the first one? I missed that. The very the very uh, first one you mentioned. Originally, Cordian. They were Cordian. acquired by Pegasystem. Gotcha. And so Cordian did what? What was that? What was that company? It was it was essentially a CRM for big call centers, and like our companies were the big insurance companies, big credit card companies. If you were calling in cancel your credit card or change your insurance or you had some kind of problem. Mm -hmm. All of our software was the back end mm -hmm. that connected the phone systems and their databases. And, and let's, let's talk about Cordian then for a second. So uh, when you joined them, 
how many employees did they have? What was their revenue? What year was that roughly? Okay, I was that was ninety six. The okay. revenues were in the mid. Um, they were probably high six figures, very low seven figures. Well, so like eight, um, nine hundred thousand, or maybe just yeah, over a million, something like that. Not a million, a million ish. Mm -hmm. That was um, in in. I'm going to say it was ninety seven. Okay. Um, we um, we IPO tragically in the in February of ninety nine. I'm sorry, in February of 2000. So wait, so just so I'm clear, so there were just a handful of employees at that point? I mean, you're doing yeah. about a million in revenue. There shouldn't yeah. be more than five to seven yeah, employees. Was, we were probably 12, maybe. Okay. Yeah. And you had, so, uh, and so you came on when there was around a dozen employees or so? Yep. And was it, what was, what was your role when you first came on? Um, well, I had, I, the, the official role was, I remember what the exact title was. <laughs> I did everything that they well, asked me to, right? Yeah, it's a long, it was a long time ago. Yeah, um, I got you. No, we don't have to. Know, it, was, it was, it was in the professional services area of the company, and I was the guy that came in and helped them close and then run the biggest accounts. Like, you know, gotcha. We, we did the first the big one that we did was, you remember back in the days of OnStar with General Motors? Mm -hmm. um, that was, you know, that was that was our first sort of big win was getting the call center at General Motors. And so did. And did you say tragically you went public in 2000? Yes. So what, tragically? Well, yeah, because you heard the date, right? Right. Well, yeah, right. <laughs> 2000. So, yeah, we, we came out at 14, went to 56, and then May happened. Um, and by the summer, we were back down to a buck 65. Wow. Uh, okay. So it took, it took seven years to climb out of that hole. So did you, did you stay with them the whole time? Um, for most of it, yes. For most um, of it. And, and then I moved over to Calidus, where, where they were looking for another guy that had kind of been through the grind like me um, to come in and first run their professional services organization mm -hmm. then eventually transition them from an enterprise software company to a cloud company and then running global sales. Yeah. Can you give us a sense then as far as Cordian is concerned? Did you did you still have an ownership position when because you said they were acquired not terribly long ago, right? Uh, that was no the, the acquisition that that Pega did was I'm going to guess was in 2006. Okay. Oh, so it was quite some yeah. time ago. I got gotcha. you. Yeah. So they IPO'd in ninety. I'm sorry, 2000. Right. Um, and then then we ran as a public company for a while, and then uh, and then Pega acquired them. Mm -hmm. So did you did you still have a a, a decent uh, ownership position? I mean, if you came on yeah, with, with twelve I, employees. I mean, I, yeah, I hung on to I hung on to I don't know probably a third of my stock, um, and I had sold a little bit of it along the way, mm -hmm. you know, just depending on some of it while it was public, some of it went at the at the acquisition. I got paid off the rest of it. Mm -hmm. And and there was no earnout. There was no there was nope. nothing tied already, to it. Nope, I had already gone by the time that Pega made the offer and bought it. Gotcha. And and, and what did Calidus do? Calidus ran, um, did software that paid really large, complicated sales forces. So our companies were all the big insurance companies, all the big cell phone companies, all the big pharma companies. So if you had a sales force that was several thousand people with really complicated incentive comp systems, mm -hmm. our software tied into the back ends of all your sales systems, you know, with what business got sold, what sure. were your comp plans for the different sales people. Um, and we made sure that that everybody got paid what they were supposed to and that they could you know, look up a report online that told them why they got paid what they got. 
Mm-hmm. So, and that was what, so you were there, you joined them around 03? Is yeah. that? Yeah, right, yeah, 03. And like I said, I came in the essentially first to run professional services, but the, the CEO really had wanted, we were selling at that time enterprise software for you know seven figure kinds of, and oh, you're gonna ask me how many people. Um, I think there were a dozen or so people when I joined um, Calidus. Mm-hmm. And we, you know, like I said, we- Revenue around that time when you joined in 03, do you remember? Probably 14, 14 like 14, 14 million. Okay, so, so it was pretty 14, substantial. 14, 15 million dollars. And you were with them for how long? Uh, seven, six years, seven years. Okay. Uh, three to 10. So depending on exactly when the, when the years cut off, somewhere between. Yeah. And how many employees did they have when you left? And what was the revenue when you, when you left? Um, we had about 400 employees when wow. I left and we were at about 350 million. Wow. That's a massive jump. And you said the exit on that was, that was also an IPO? We IPO'd in 04, and then we ran as a public company for seven, seven or eight years, mm-hmm. and then, uh, and then um, SAP bought them. They, they, SAP had a quasi-competing product, but they never really got traction. With yeah. So um, they just went ahead and just wrote a big check. So um, the IPO uh, happened almost, uh, I mean, just a, a year or so. About a year and a half after I joined. You know, it's kind of an interesting discussion in and of itself, which is just going public. I mean, it, it, again, both of these companies had, you know, roughly a dozen employees. Mm-hmm. And so maybe a little bit of growth when you when you came in uh, in both of those. But they both went public and they were pretty small in the scheme yeah, of things. I mean, I mean you, could, you could do that, especially, you know, for Cordian time. You could you could be a hundred million dollar company. At that time. I mean, mm-hmm. that, that, in the day, you could do that mm-hmm. um, with. Calidus, you could go public again. You could go public between a hundred and two hundred million dollars, mm-hmm. and that was not. You could even do it for less than. I can't remember. Where, I think we had just crossed a hundred million dollars when we actually IPO. Mm-hmm. Um, but that was not. You know, you don't do that today. Um, but but you can. But you could do that pretty pretty easily back then. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so just, just sticking with those two for a second, what, what do you think were some of the primary drivers to, to growth? Like as you, as you look back and, and obviously going from, you know, 14 million to 350 million is a, is a massive jump. 12 employees right. to 400 employees is a massive jump. Yeah. Uh, what, what are some of the, the drivers of, of, of the growth for those two companies? And, and I know those are going back a, a little bit in time. And I think, uh, you know, Appio, I think you said was the name of the third one there. That, that may be yeah. a little fresher in your memory. But as you look back uh, on, on those two, what, what do you really think were some of the drivers of that growth? Um, well, we were in a good place at the right time with the right kind of products for the, for the customers, the enterprise customers that we were calling on. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, one of the reasons why, you know, a lot of the VCs and other people like the big enterprise players is, when you're either sell- back in the early days when we were selling licenses, most of those deals were seven-figure license deals, seven-figure projects with seven-figure hardware budgets attached to them. And, you know, one of the primary reasons why that didn't last, which was part of the transition to Calis, was even the enterprises get tired of paying that. So, you know, the cloud stuff came into play, mm-hmm. um, and and the you know you're you're doing you're doing deals that are worth you know five, six, ten million dollars, um, and so it's easier to, to kind of hop up the revenue trail when you're when you're doing that especially mm-hmm. when you have you 
know, services on top of the the subscription or license deal that are, you know, worth two thirds, you know, half to two thirds of that sum just to get them implemented and up and running. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I don't want to hug, hug the mic here, my <laughs> Richie. What's coming up for you? Oh, there's a bunch. Um, I mean, I've actually been part of two companies that started out traditional licensing and then moved to the cloud. And it's it was interesting in, and I would love to hear your opinion on how you priced it out and how you thought out pricing because um, it's a different model. Nobody knew at the time. They didn't quite, they're like, well, what is going to be the benefit? They liked the idea of it being less per month. Like that's, they did like that. And yeah. it was great in hindsight, looking back, there was no mass exodus like there could be when that big bill came for the traditional licensing. Just wondering, how did you think out the pricing structure when you were changing from traditional licensing to the monthly recurring? Yeah. Well, we first, we were dealing with enterprises. So we only signed annual contracts. Mm. Typically they were multi-year contracts. Um, it's funny because originally when we made the transition, um, we thought we were building a product that would go to the mid-market. You know, we just thought we would continue to sell licenses to the, to the enterprise players. And we thought that the mid-market companies would be the ones that, that bought the subscriptions. And, that's not what happened. The, the enterprise guys loved it because they didn't have to spend, you know, raise a bunch of big capital. And, you know, even though they were signing up for a year or two or three at a time, from their perspective, that was a minimal commitment. Mm. Um, so what what we did is we we took a couple of things into consideration. Um, first, you know, the average amount of money companies spent on their you know, every year, if you divide it up, their total acquisition costs for a license, their hardware, their depreciation and all that stuff, they ended up paying um, roughly five times what they bought for, what they paid for a license over the course of the seven or eight years that they actually owned the product before they retired. it. So we were familiar with those, those, those statistics. So we just kind of took our license price and divided it by somewhere between four and five and, you know, of what we would have charged them for a license and then figured out, well, how many, you know, in the way that the metric that we used the Calavis was payees, how many people were being paid, that mm. was that was the subscription basis, um, and divided it by, you know, a bunch of the companies that we had done business with and set a base price. And because some of the demands were so variable, um, you know, the, the base price would get much lower than our MSRP, if you will, for companies that were massive and for companies that were, you know, had really complicated requirements on their data integration, they might pay the MSRP or maybe even a little bit more because the data the, the data integration requirements are severe. Um, so, you know, the, the easy answer is just sort of divide by somewhere between four and five of what the license was, but that was the original price point. Mm. You know, once you're doing that for a year and a half or two years, you know, what you originally referenced it to just loses all significance. Right. Um, <laughs> And then, then you're in a market game, right? It's like, what are other people that are doing similar things charging? Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I mean, no points well taken. So, is it is it safe to say that you did fairly well on the on the Cordian and and Calidus companies, the exits, the acquisitions, yeah. all of that? Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah between yeah. just being smart about, you know, what when you leave, what what do you hang on to? What do you sell on the way out? Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's never any fun being one of the the officers that's reported. You know, on the uh, out, out in public, um, which I'm not sure whether I'd like to do that ever again. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, 
because everybody knows your business at that point, right? How many how many shares you sold for covering your tax bill in a given quarter or whatever's going on. Yeah. So it was nice to be out and be able to sell it when I wanted. Do you still have holdings in, in either of those at all? Did you keep uh, Did you keep anything, or obviously? No, they were, they were, well, they were all bought. Right? They were all so, bought. So they were yeah. all bought. So, I mean, whether or not at the end, if I had anything left, they 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 just bought it. Yeah, was, I didn't have a choice. Um, and was, you then moved to to Appia. What what? So what year was that? That must have been around eleven. It was twenty ten. Twenty ten. Yeah. Twenty. I was there from twenty ten through twenty twelve. I had learned by this point that you don't have to stay all the way to the end um, mm. <laughs> to get a to get a payday from it. Actually, let's so let's talk about that. What so what changed for you then in your philosophy as far as uh, did you did did you look at this and obviously with startup Nevada and whatnot you must I mean God the amount of deals that must come across your table have got to be immense. So yeah, we see we see tons. I, yeah. I bet and um and so what I, what I'm trying to get to the to the bottom of here then is as you as you became more aware of, of and I guess that's really what maturity kind of is. A, yeah. Maturity is really just a reflection of being more aware of what's possible, mm-hmm. what you should, shouldn't do, et cetera. So as you became, I guess, more mature about uh, really understanding this, this whole startup world and, uh, and acquisitions, IPO, like all that fun stuff. What was your thinking going in then to Appio? Like I can, I can come in, I can really try to help this company grow for a couple of years. I can get that payday. I mean, what was that your philosophy going in? It, it was. Um, so I, the other two I was with for six, between six and seven years. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were, I loved the work. I loved the, the colleagues that I met and the business that we were doing. But I didn't, when I looked back on them, I, I feel like, well, I'm not sure that I would have made any more or less money, at least in terms of non-salary money, um, if, if I had stayed four or five years versus staying six or seven. Mm-hmm. I didn't view that there was a, a huge difference in the amount of money I would have. Mm-hmm. So when I went in, when I went into the to the last one, um, the the idea was I want to stay um, long enough to to have an impact, um, but not so long that it that, that I that I it overstayed my welcome. Yeah, I mean, I I the place that I get my most career joy from is in that sort of green field where things are unsure, the path is not certain. Um, you know, you've got to figure it out where you're going as you're going along. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of people who aren't comfortable in that world. I love it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so when that starts to, you know, when you start to get into a couple of hundred employees and you know, two hundred fifty, two hundred million dollars, and sort of the professionals start to take over, and you have a bunch of processes you have to follow, um, I start to get antsy. Yeah. And this time I didn't wait. I just said, "All right, now's the time." So. I'm sorry. So Appio, when you came in, came in the door, what what were they doing revenue wise? How many employees did they have? Just I think general- we had we had um, less than five million in in revenue. Okay. Uh, I think I think I was employee. I don't remember whether I was just into the double digits or I was just into the single digits, but it was a bunch of us came in about the same time. So it depends on what time of day people think for timestamp. Yeah. But uh, but we were. Um, and you, I'll and- say around ten. Somewhere and you must have been pretty, I mean, as you, as you said, you had the education now, you'd been through it a couple of times. So what yeah. was the entry comp structure? How did you, how did you structure then your involvement in terms of salary and upside and compensation? Like what generally did that look like in this, in this, in, in this third go, if you will, in, right. uh, in this world? So, so the salary was not as important. You right. know, I wanted it to be um, reasonable and you know, be able to pay the bill, the, sort of the monthly bills. But that became much, much less of, a, of an important factor. Um, 
I actually had to take a, an apartment in Seattle or, or Bellevue um, to, to make it happen. So I wanted, I was mostly interested in covering my, my nut for, for the cost. Mm-hmm. And I just took as much stock as they were willing to give me mm-hmm. um, because, you know, we were attracting some of the, some of the big boys, you know, um, from Sandville Road and, and, and up in Seattle as, as VCs and early stage investors. So there was, um, was there funding at that point? Had it already there was been, some, there, there, there was, was some. some, there was some early funding. And, you know, the, the big attraction for me was the people that they, you know, were kind of having meetings with and that they wanted me and the team to make sure that we could finish, sort of finish the close and get the, get the, get the money raised. Yeah. Um, that was the attraction for me was being, being part of that, you know, finish the next round and then, then, then build from there. And FEO did what specifically again? I don't think we, I don't think we answered that. So yeah, they, they, the acronym we came up for it was Technology Business Management or TBM. We essentially turned the CIO of enterprise companies into um, the CIO um, into the CEO of a services company. So I, you know, CIOs are under huge pressure for most of their companies because they're a big expense on the bottom line for these big enterprises. Um, they don't do whatever it is the company does, whether they're a bank or an investment company or a retail store. You know, the, the IT stuff is infrastructure. Costs. Yeah. So if you turn that CIO into a CEO of a services company, they can sell their services back to the enterprise um, for competitive rates. And if somebody else in the enterprise wants to buy the services from a cloud company, they can. Um, then when things get tight and you got to cut budget, then the CIO can say to the rest of the organization, well, which services would you like me to not deliver? Um, and it makes that argument really plain and very businesslike as opposed to, all right, I'm just going to cut 25% of my staff and then the whole organization's going to scream at me because I can't meet my, you know, my metric. I can't, I can't do the service I need to do. So for a lot of CIOs and CEOs in these Fortune 100 and 500 companies just love the idea of it being that um, yeah. transparent. So it was, it was another one of those hairy backend integration things with the financials and the, the data that's coming from all the IT stuff. Yeah, good. Yeah, I was I was wanting to go back to it's been a common theme. Well, not common, but it comes up quite often. Something you mentioned there when you said you got to the 300 400 employees, it just you just didn't like that piece. You like when yeah. it's a little more where's yeah. it going? What's going on? And I I think I remember even Chip Conley, Schwad of Eve had said something very similar once he got to a certain level of employees, it just I don't remember the exact terminology, but it was the same type of thing that you're saying. And, and so what I'm interested in is one, what kind of internal, what did you recognize internally in you that then made you want to make that switch from taking these bigger companies to then, we haven't really got into Startup Nevada yet, but I'm assuming based on the name that it's more towards startups, right? So what what was it first that you self-acknowledged or I don't know the exact what how I want to phrase it, but how did that first come to you? And then is that what helped you develop this new company you're working on now? Um, well, yeah, it, I recognized it through sort of three different things that I did. I spent a couple of years at Accenture before I went to Cordian and I knew that that was not my gig. I mean, I was, those were, I mean, Accenture is a wonderful place. But for a guy like me who doesn't like the big, super organized things, that was just that was painful. Mm-hmm. Um, so I started to recognize it then. Um, I don't think I actually kind of figured out that uh, the magic number is usually somewhere between three and four hundred employees. Um, 
And it, there's usually things that happen with HR at that point about putting in really formal disciplines around um, how you manage the team, how you manage the company. Um, and it, it, it becomes more process oriented than actually focused on the product or the, the actual people and the humans and what they can do for you. Um, and it, and it, I think it happens everywhere. I mean, it's just natural that when you're that big, I call them the process people. They come in and they start to take over the folks that look a lot like the folks at Accenture who are awesome. Um, and, you know, you know, when you, when you have to start creating a process for, you know, when it's how you're going to answer the phone, when it's right to request resources for something that's in, that you should, as the owner of a department or a part of the company, you should be able to just do on your own. Um, to, to meet whatever your objectives are. That's that's when that's for me when it, when it and I, I went through it three times. It took maybe maybe I'm dull. That <laughs> it took me three times to figure out. All right, when it gets to this point, you're just not having any fun anymore. You're grinding it out. So, yeah. And was that part of how you came up with the idea to start? I mean, I don't know if I'm jumping the gun no, on if you want to get in because I'd I'd love to know how you took that knowledge into this new company that you're building out. Yeah. So, so there was there was a couple of sort of interim steps between um, Appio and um, Startup NV where, you know, I I, I I was I lived in Nevada during you know about halfway through Calidus when I knew I was going to exit. I did not want to be a California resident, so I, I moved to Nevada. I was running global sales, so it didn't really matter where I lived. I was traveling all over the world. Um, and the idea was, all right, I'm going to have this exit. I'm going to start my next company as a founder as opposed to being. One of one of several, um, and I want to do it in Nevada. Well, at that point, there were no there was no capital and there were no coders in Nevada, so I kept having to leave. Um, eventually, I, I wound up doing a, a startup uh, with a with a buddy of mine in Austin, Texas, out of the Capital Factory there, and just had a terrific experience starting the company. Um, you know, I was you know getting it up and going, getting the, the product off the iPhone and into the cloud, and actually making it available to be sold. And the experience was so good when I came back home to Nevada, I said, I'm going to do my next company in one of these, these incubators. Well, there weren't any. Um, so I said, instead of me leaving again, I'm just going to, I'm going to fix the problem. I'm going to see if I can find some like-minded people. We're going to fix the problem in Nevada. So that's what, what the inspiration for Startup MV was, was to create an environment like I got when I was with all of those companies I just talked about, plus the one I experienced in Austin through the Capital Factory. And I wanted to create that experience for startups in Nevada. Um, and it, like I said, it just didn't exist. Even though it exists all over the world in our state, for whatever reason, it didn't. Um, and that was the, sort of the inspiration to, to get it started. What, um, year, what year was that generally? Uh, we started Startup NV in the paperwork was done at the end of 2016. We really didn't take on our first cohort until the middle of 2017. Gotcha. I mean, because so, you, you obviously had the Zappos culture and you had some other folks that were there, no? Yeah, we did. Tony Shea just poured his heart and soul into downtown Vegas, and, and the guy's awesome. Yeah. Um, but, you know, he, it was, timing was a bit bad on that. I mean, he was doing that in 09, 10, 11. You know, it was a pretty rough time. Nevada was hit brutally hard yeah. um, during that time. And, and frankly, there, I mean, people... It, it achieved a certain objective, but I don't think it ever achieved, it, certainly from a real estate perspective, it, everybody did pretty well. Mm -hmm. uh, from sort of a startup incubation perspective, um, there was a lot of sputtering and starting and stopping, and, and it sort of it 
back into just the real estate investment. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, we're finding a lot of people still remember that. And that's one of the reasons why, I mean, because Tony did what he did, it created a lot of understanding and momentum that we could kind of step into a startup and, and be to, to move it forward, even though Tony's, Tony's pulled back mm-hmm. on, on, on his work in that, in that area. So, so let's talk about then Startup Envy or Startup Nevada, whatever we're going to call it here, but Startup Envy, I, I just I want to try to make sure I'm, I'm clear on this. So are you guys, are you an actual incubator then that, yes. uh, that you bring companies in, you help provide funding, and then you help mentor them and move them forward with, a, with an eye on owning a piece of this and even though it's a nonprofit, I mean, obviously if they go public or anything of that nature or get acquired, you, you still get paid. So yes. just talk generally about the structure. So the structure is we did it as a nonprofit because, you know, we wanted to do a little bit of a give back to our community. We got, I personally got a lot of help along the way um, from people and I wanted to create that ecosystem in Nevada so that other people could get the same help and, and have exits and, um, and hopefully have that, benefit accrue to our state's economy. Um, you know, the state does a great job with, with uh, gaming and tourism and mining. Um, we wanted to help diversify a bit. So the way our business works is we do those things that you talked about. Um, you know, we, we have a program um, that, that we push the entrepreneurs through. First, it, it, it re- first we have pitch days every Wednesday. Um, we hear usually three pitches every week, um, about one in eight companies we see we actually like enough that we think we can help and we bring them into the program. That's a um, huge number. One out of every eight. Yeah. That's a, I mean, that's a huge, is that because you're, are you, I, I mean, are you mentoring them before the pitch? So they're coming in already or I, we I guess them with, we provide them with a bunch of information that tells them the kind of companies we like and how they ought to pitch to us. And some of that we provide some of it stuff that comes out of Y Combinator and 500 startups. You know, those guys are mm-hmm. awesome information and coaching they provide. So in, in to that end, then, uh, and, and so it's interesting, you obviously have a, a background in software as a service and enterprise stuff and all that fun stuff that you were doing. Um, I actually am working on, uh, on my own startup. I was, I've been in the tech world for a long time. Uh, actually launched on CompuServe's Electronic Mall in 1993. Okay. So okay. go way back. And then uh, that company became liquor.com when I picked up that domain in 98. And anyway, long story around that. But yeah. um, I did real estate development for about 15 years as well when I was in Chicago. Now we're in San Diego. Yeah. Anyway, the, uh, the company that, uh, that I've been working on is, uh, is called Latitude, which is spelled okay. differently. But basically, and you'll appreciate this, it's housing as a service for digital nomads, which gives people the opportunity to have the flexibility of basically living anywhere, so to speak, but, you know, the benefits of, uh, of owning without the, uh, shall we say the headaches of home ownership. So there's actually an equity piece built into that as well. Um, wow, that would be really interesting with opportunities. And stuff. Yeah. Right. I know, man. So, <laughs> so what, so what makes for a great pitch? Like what gets your ears to kind of perk up or as my friend Sam Horn says, you know, what, what kind of passes the eyebrow test? It's you go, Hmm, tell me more about that. So we, I mean, we only will help companies we consider to be scalable. Um, and what, how we define that is you have to have a mid eight, you have, you have to, you have to be worthy of at least a mid eight figure exit and you have to be focused on an exit as a founder. Mm. We see a lot of companies that come through, they, they're awesome ideas and businesses, but they're not, they want to build a business for themselves and earn. And that's fine, but yeah. that's not what we want to do. Um, so you have to be in Nevada. You have to, you have to have uh, a 
an eye on an exit. Yeah, and the thing has to, you have to I, we have to see a path to an, at least an eight-figure exit and hopefully more. Um, you, know, I, you know, we don't want to get too big for our britches, so we're probably not focused on a lot of IPO-style companies here in, in, in Nevada right now. But growing a company to be acquired, like I said, mid-eight figures, low nine figures, and the way that we work is we ask our founders to pay $100 a month to be in the program plus any rent that, that they might need for the facilities the brand. And then we ask them to donate 1% of their equity to our nonprofit. Mm. Um, and, and then whatever, you know, whatever dilution that the, the founder might take, we take the same dilution. Um, and then our, our idea is all the founders think they're going to exit in two or three or four years. As long as they're within 10 years, I'm feeling pretty good about it. Mm -hmm. um, and then we're hoping that, that, that those, all of those 1% add to something that will essentially become a substantial foundation where we can do a lot of other cool, good work, um, you know, in, in our home state, uh, mm -hmm. both in terms of the business community and trying to educate founders and, and just to create a stronger, more resilient economy um, so that when we do get hit by another downturn, it, it will come. Don't know when, but sometime at some point, it all, they always seem to come. Uh, we won't get as damaged by it as we did in, in 08 or 09. Mm -hmm. um, so, and then at the same time, we started a fund, a, a small early stage capital fund, so that we could invest in these startups. Now, the, in, the incubator is a nonprofit. The fund is not a nonprofit, um, and you know, we make fifty thousand to one hundred thousand dollar investments in the incubator companies that have gotten far enough along. Um, that that we that we believe that they need this money to get to hopefully a seed stage investment. Mm -hmm. So um, that probably goes back to Steve's comment of mm -hmm. why the number was so big in the beginning. You believe in them and you want a big enough pool to be in that yeah. incubator, and well, then yeah. you'll put the other money in later for seed money. But they need to, you know. Yeah, they need to work it out a little bit first. I mean, uh, most mm -hmm. of these. I mean, like I said, everybody comes in looking for money right away. Um, we very when we actually welcome them in, we give them a list of seventy things they have to do before they're allowed to ask for money, um, and that usually pushes people back a bit. Um, and it's like, okay, I doubt you can get through all of this stuff in three months, maybe in six. Um, and and most of them take you know a little longer than that before they're ready to even apply for some of that money. So Let's, um... some people lose patience along the way and give up and leave because they're not going to get the money, and others stick with it. Some of them get money. Some of them raise money outside. We don't really care as long as we can help them succeed, whether they're taking our money or somebody else's. You know, these are the things they have matter. to do anyway. I would think. I mean, yes. that's, as, that's exactly. So whether again, it's just not, so many folks just don't want to go through the exercise of what it really takes to to foundationally build a, a business that is scalable and, and sustainable and and positioned for an exit. So. Uh, give us, and first and foremost, is there, um, is that a checklist or something that you make available? Like, is there a website or something where people can go to get that checklist of 70 things? Or is that something you only do for the companies that you're, we do, you're... We do those for the company. We have some of it available on our, on our website, which is startupnv.org. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, or startup envy, that's mm -hmm. what we like to call it. Right. Uh, so, uh, so some of it's available in our materials online mm -hmm. and, um, some of it we keep kind of behind the firewall so that we can hand it off to our, our company. So can you give uh, us uh, a, a, 
let's just call it a, a high level understanding of what some of the, obviously we're not going to go through all 70, but like, can you give us a high level understanding uh, of what some of those things are? And, and this is great because here on the show, we cover a lot of different, um, we have a lot of different discussions. Some discussions are, are focused on the start. Uh, some are focused on the scale. Some are focused on the exit. Um, this, this is really good from, from a start standpoint, like, and, and it and actually reflects, even though I've built other businesses, other multi-million dollar businesses in the past, you know, I'm, I'm feeling like a rookie with this thing, because to be honest, it's, I mean, it's a, it's a unicorn all day long. Yeah. I mean, even if we just have 100, well, I, me- even if we just have 100 members, because the membership driven program, obviously housing is a service at, uh, even if we just have a hundred members at each of the three levels, it's 250 million in real estate because we'd actually own the real estate. That's the biggest difference between us. It's kind of a real estate play disguised as a tech play, so to speak. But, you know, the point is I, I'm still feeling like just a rookie here, you know, like just a, a, it's like a little kid again. And it's, it's scary and it's disturbing and all these things because it's just, it's a much bigger animal. Right. So as as you look at some of these 70 things, so for a person like me or for someone else who has this idea that's been fleshed out a bit, but it's still very much in the embryonic stages, well, what are some of those things in the in the start phase here that they really need to be thinking about? Great. Well, so first, Steve, awesome idea. They've got great studios here in Las Vegas that you could possibly move yourselves and your businesses to. So right. I know. We're, we're in San Diego. We're pretty close. I know. A lot of a lot tax of benefits of being in Nevada, that's for there sure. There you go. A lot of people from my from, from that area yep. uh, that are thinking about coming our way. So uh, uh so so what we concentrate on is you know moving from idea through the, the beta stage, the MVP stage, in, into the initial sales, um creating um a scalable marketing and sales plan that 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 you can reproduce beyond the initial first sales that you have to just grind out as a, as a founder and as an early stage person. So can um, we, can we talk about that for one second? Cause I don't want to gloss over that. So what you're saying yeah. is so how important is getting to what they call a minimal viable product and having early sales or even pre-selling? Like in our case, I think we would have to pre-sell these memberships before we go out and like we market it and pre-sell it and create some sort of MVP there. Can you just, I don't want to gloss over that. How important is is that in this process for you in looking at it from startup envy standpoint? Well, it's critical. I mean, there are some things that we might invest in before there's an MVP. Very few. I I mean, you would have to be a proven guy um, or gal to, that has done this before. If you got to get any money before you've built an MVP and made at least a few sales, Mm. Um, but get any money out of us and certainly out of anybody else. Um, And so, whether you're pre, whether you've got it on a on a pitch deck and you're pre-selling it, um, or whether you've built sort of the very beginnings of some rough product that you can work with, that's one of the critical first steps. And if you're a if you're a non-technical founder um, and you don't have a technical co-founder who can do some of that work as part of the co-founding team for equity, or if you don't have it, you know, haven't acquired a little bit of capital that you can spend on your own on this stuff, mm-hmm. it's much much harder. Um, I mean, unless you've got friends and family or other fools that want to invest in you. Um, Did you but, say uh, fools? Well, that's, that, that's the first round. In the right? early rounds, yeah. <laughs> friends, families, and fools. Um, and uh, the, the uh, because they they know you and they believe in you personally, they'll invest in you. Yeah. But the uh, the people who don't know you, unless you've done it before and had some success, you're not going to get any outside professional investors to invest in you. 
Mm -hmm. um, so that's a very, very critical step is getting to MVP or beta. And you know, for a SaaS play, that's reasonably easy to do. Yeah, um, if you're so. building you're building a product. Um, if you're an engineer you're, or, or business person and you're building an actual physical product, whether it's an IoT product or some other thing that you're going to make and scale, way harder. I mean, it's just more expensive to do. And those are some of the ones that, that we'll take a look at maybe investing in, especially if they've got patents and some other stuff you know, for a product um, that may get some early stage money to build that prototype um, as opposed to a software product where you, you should have somebody in your crew that can at least build that first beta or MVP. For you. Yeah. Yeah, Richie, I know, um, and I want to hog it here, but I know you've had obviously a lot of experience in all this fun stuff. So what uh, what's coming to mind for you right now? Yeah, it's kind of a mix between the two because I know exactly where he's coming from. And you you hear this, I, we even heard it on the interview right before, investors bet more on the, the jockey than the horse. And so yep. to your point of not doing this exact thing, although, so I guess where I was really going to say is how much do past successes in different verticals help? So in Steve's case, he's had many successes in other verticals, but not necessarily in this type of thing. Does that translate or if it, it, it does to a degree, I mean, I'm, it does to a degree because you've been there, done that, you know, how to think through problems, you know, how to pivot, you, you know, you're not going in thinking I've got all the answers. Um, so that's, that's helpful. The, the, the slam dunks are when you're essentially doing a different version of the same thing that you did before. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. And, you know, I've never been smart enough to do that. <laughs> always ended up doing something eh, kind of in the SaaS or software world, but it's always been a little bit of a different thing. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, but to the extent that you can stay in in the general area that you were before, that's that's obviously better. Um, but yeah, the people gen will bet as much, if not more, on the jockey than the horse. So I would add then, kind of knowing a little more, but you don't really know a lot about it you heard just a the minimum viable pitch i guess um but so in this case though based on what you know so far would you try to structure it as hey uh no matter what you pre-sell you're getting these properties because then unlike a SaaS company there's real legit yeah. tangible property that's sitting there that no matter what you know, in a year to year period, it might move, but we all know. You're saying with, with, with latitude yeah. because we actually have a physical, because the, the, you have the appreciation and the tangible asset yeah. in the real estate because we'll own Correct. it as opposed to just being a software company. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, I think it's, I think I would love to hear more about it. That's a pitch that, that would really intrigue me. I'll send you the deck. <laughs> <laughs> um, because, uh, because it's got a lot of interesting components to it in the real estate. I mean, I, I was, I wasn't kidding about the opportunity zone stuff. Yeah, for sure. Um, for the, sure. Uh, that, that, that will layer on some really interesting benefits to, you know, getting, raising capital, you know, especially for somebody who's had an exit and, you know, you can defer the taxes for until 2026 on the, on the opportunity zone stuff. Yeah. And yep. it's not a, it's a business and real estate, which like I said, makes it really intriguing. Yeah. So, We'll uh, we'll, uh, we'll chat. I don't want to. <laughs> <Okay. Yeah. laughs> I don't make this conversation all about about latitude. What we're doing there, but uh, but I will say that uh, I would love to have a conversation with you. We yeah. will, uh, as far as that goes. Um, is there is there a sweet spot for 
uh, Startup Envy that, um, you, you know, like, obviously you've been doing this now for a little while. Are, are you finding that there's a common thread uh, among what you're seeing today? And it may differ from what you saw a year ago, but today, is there a common thread that you're seeing amongst the investments that you're saying yes to? Is, is there, what, what, what can we... Yeah, it's kind of like data, right? So we're, we, you've got all of this data. You see all of these pitches. You see all of these opportunities. You have access to data that a lot of us entrepreneurs or you know aspiring entrepreneurs, depending on where folks are on this uh, on this path here, you have access to this data. So what what are you seeing right now, and what really li- lights you guys up in terms of that sweet spot? Um, I wish that we had been around, or that our state had enough of a a big enough of an ecosystem that we could actually start to have cohorts that are, you know, SAS, a SAS cohort and an insured tech cohort or a med tech cohort, or, yeah. you know, a real estate cohort. Um, but because Nevada from a, from a population perspective is relatively small, yeah. um, we've kept our, we've kept our, our focus pretty broad. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, having said that we still, we see a lot of SAS stuff, you know, and that, that, that's attractive to me because I understand it. Um, yeah. but we have, you know, we have, we have about a hundred mentors in our program and a board of advisors of about 20 people that hear the pitches and our wow. experience is all over the map. So, so, so those hundred mentors are all entrepreneurs who have been successful in their own yes. right. And they're, wow. So it's a, so um, it's a, well, I'd say probably half of them are people that have had some success. Um, and the other half are, I'll say subject matter experts, sure. you know, somebody who's a CFO, somebody who's a marketing guru. Somebody who's a sales genius for mm-hmm. products or mm-hmm. for retail or for, um, you know, yeah. education or whatever that specialty is that they that they made their career in. So we can match the mentors with the companies that are in the stage where the company needs an expert like that. And they mm-hmm. only be a mentor for, you know, a month or two or three. And then they need a different kind of mentor. Yeah. So we like to have a really broad spectrum of people that can help. Mm-hmm. And Richard, did you have anything else? Because I know you're always chomping, and I, t- I tend to hog the mic here. I just want to make sure you got. Uh, if there's anything else you wanted to ask, real quick. Nothing pertinent to this, but okay. I will come back to something. So You'll go come ahead. back. Okay. So, um, so is part of your thinking then around that? Uh, is it is it kind of hedging your 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 investment bet, your investment capital, so to speak, across different sectors, so that there there is some sort of dollar cost averaging, or is it literally just if I can get one of these to hit, because I, I mean, obviously, you know how the numbers work in this. So you're going to make 100 bets. And if one of those goes unicorn, then, you know, 99 don't matter. So right. is that a, a bit of the philosophy there? Yeah, it's I mean, it's the general. I mean, you'll read some version of this one out of 20, you know, from almost all of the whether you're in venture capital or angel capital or seed fund or whatever. The investments are smaller, but the theories are the same. Right. You out of every 20. Um, you're going to have one that works or, and works well. Maybe not a unicorn, but that, that's going to do well. Sure. Um, you're going to have two or three break even, maybe make a little, and the rest go to zero. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, so the idea is, you know, you spread your bets. And a lot of these, a lot of the guys that are specialists in certain things, well, they're spreading their bets across 20 companies in MedTech or SaaS. Um, we're spreading our bets across scalable companies that are in Nevada. Um, and eventually, at some point, once we've had a few exits and we can start to see some cohorts, that would be cool. But I, I, I don't kid myself; that may take us a decade to get there. Yeah, 
Yeah. And, and that's part of the, I mean, it's, it's, it's almost the same entrepreneurial journey that you were, the companies you were investing in are going, I mean, you guys are, yeah. because you're so new to this in, and to that end, how scary is it for you then to, at this stage of your career, then to have a new venture in a new industry that, you know, frankly, you didn't have that experience before. So, I mean, it's, it's an incubator. It's a, it's a fund. It's, it's all these things that you, you haven't done before. So at this stage of your career, is that, is that scary for you or is it exciting for you? How, how are you looking at it? I, I'm excited by it every day. Um, you know, I get out of bed and um, I just can't wait to see what there is to do. Mm -hmm. um, the, and I, the, my uh, fellow Nevadans, um, whether they're, in the governor's office or in the city offices or in the, the economic development communities, they just love what we're doing. So we get a lot of sort of support from them. Yeah. And then seeing all these, all these entrepreneurs come in with just awesome. Well, I, I like to tell our people to come to pitch day. We see many awesome ideas and I we bet. see ideas that are not awesome. <laughs> <laughs> um, and you know, about, about seven out of eight are, are either, not awesome enough, or that's just not awesome, or not well thought through, or not researched. Mm -hmm. um, you know, people go, people watch Shark Tank. They think that the deal is going to get done in three minutes, and you know, when they realize it's not, it's sometimes it's a bit of a letdown. Yeah. And are you are you out raising capital for your fund? Then are you and yeah. are, so you go into the Tony Shays of the world or the Winds of the world and saying, hey, well, let's throw money back into Nevada. I mean, obviously they're they're they've won. Yeah. Uh, big time. I mean, you talk about hitting a lot. I mean, you know, they've won big time being in Nevada doing what they're doing there, right? So, are, are they backing Startup Envy as well? Well, we have a, I mean, our fund, our, our first fund, Fund Envy, um, fundenvy.com, if you want to look it up online, is a million dollar fund. So, it's pretty small. Okay. Um, we're only asking our LPs to cough up $10,000. They're all accredited investors. Some of them are really wealthy people that are well known, but maybe don't want to bet a big number on all these early stage startups. So, mm -hmm. um, so, you know, as we have success with our first fund, I suspect our, our next one will be a bit bigger if it follows the path that many of the other regional funds have followed, Yeah, you know, whether they're Boise or Portland or, or, or wherever, um, we're kind of treading the same path that those guys did. You, know, you mm -hmm. start small and then, you know, the second, third, fourth funds are getting up into the eight figures, uh, numbers. So your investments are bigger, the mm -hmm. bets are bigger. Um, so we're, we're kind of following that same path. And, and yeah, some of the people that are investing are, you know, coughing up, you know, an eight figure sum. Mm -hmm. um, well, they all are because they're putting in at least 10,000. Yeah. Um, but, uh, or that's uh, five, five figure sum. Sorry. You know, Sorry. what's it? What's um, a few zeros between friends? Yeah. We're good. Um, but they, uh, but it's, you know, so, so yeah, a lot of, we're, in some ways, we're appealing to people, the Nevadans uh, desire to, to make their own economy do well. Mm -hmm. and, and other times it's like, no, this is a straight up angel investment fund. And we do expect to have the same or better returns than any other fund that you might invest. Yeah. Um, so, and it's gotta be a little bit, it gotta be a little bit of a catch 22 because when, when you're dealing with companies that have tremendous potential, 25 or 50 K or, you know, even a hundred K on an invest on an, like that doesn't, that may not be able to you you may not be able to attract companies that truly have nine figure billion dollar type potential you know because just the startup even a, even as a startup the startup needs to create that sort of company 
you know, are significantly higher, right? So you're a little bit, I think, in a, in a, in a, in a catch-22 there, no? Um, well, no. I mean, we, in some ways, yes, but not in every way. So we will only invest that fifty or $100,000 places where we think that that will get them to a seed round, right? Where they're going to be able to go out and raise 500 to one and a half, 500 to one and a half million dollars in a seed round. I guess. If we don't think we can get them there, then they're not going to get the investment. It doesn't matter how good they are. I mean, we do have a few companies in the mix. You know, they're betting big. I mean, they're trying to raise 20, 30 million dollars. And it's like, well, we're not going to give those guys 50 grand. That's, a, that's not a drop in the ocean. Mm-hmm. Uh, doesn't mean we're not going to help them raise. Yeah. But it's not going to come from our fund. Yeah. Um, so it's, so we try to pick the ones that that, that money will do something for um, rather than the ones that may be a great idea, but it's, it's just not the right, not the right investment. For yeah, yeah, totally get that. Well, you know, really uh, appreciate you you hanging out with us here today, and congrats on uh, all the past successes with Accordion and Calidus and Appio and everything that you got going on with Startup Envy. And of course, if people want more information on the fund, they go to startupenvy.com or startupenvy.org for what you're doing there with the incubator. Yeah, Richie. I just want to say one thing because we're saying those words so fast. It's startup letter N letter v not envy right it sounds like you're saying so yeah yeah anyways just so people actually get to the right spot is the only reason why i want to say that go ahead steve yeah man so jeff 30 seconds or less here man any uh any final words of advice for those who are looking to start or scale or exit from uh from their business um well starting and scaling keep your eye on the cash keep focused you're going to be distracted by a lot of people and a lot of ideas trying to get you off the path um you have to be flexible and ready to pivot, but stay focused, mind your cash, and just work hard. Mm-hmm. Um, and you, it, it, that, that will give you the best chance of success. Yeah. Well, again, congrats on uh, on all of your success. Uh, we'll talk. <laughs> so we'll talk really, really soon. Jeff Salang, thank you so much for joining us from Startup Nevada, Startup NV, the letters N, Nancy V, Victor. Org, and then, of course, with the fund as well at Startup NV, NV, the letters, dot com for Richie Ote and Mario Goulet, who will be back next week. And White Wade holding it down in the studio. Kelly's got it under control at headquarters. We'll talk to you next time here on Beyond Eight Figures. Take care, everybody.